Brick Moon Fiction presents Algorithms of Solar Devotion by Brian Aiello Narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle The sun is gone, but I have a light. Kurt Cobain Matilda Veltanschong faces trial at the Peace Palace International Court of Justice. The solar system has been watching its progress thanks to Galactic Corp. They streamed it live from The Hague like it was a sporting event. It attracts a billion clicks every day. Galactic displays their logo during breaks and after court rests for the day. Maybe that's what they get out of it. Free advertising. The logo is a circle filled with a flurry of lines. It's a piece called Contained Fury by its designer. It's been judged as one of the most identifiable logos ever created. On day 76, the logo disappears and a view of the courtroom is offered. It is a huge round chamber topped with an ornate stained glass window decorated dome detailing the tale of the keeper of the scales, climaxing in the weighing of an accused man's heart against the feather of truth. The last section shows him free to enter the land of the dead. The court's pews are filled with representatives of every faction on earth. Thousands of clamoring people wait for the day's action to start. When the judge enters, it is without fanfare. Forty-three, genetically Dutch in height and coloring, he signals and a bailiff points a remote at the eastern wall and a screen unfurls. An image flickers to life and Matilda appears. She is tall, with platinum hair. Her blue eyes are dark and feverish, her face flat like a shovel. She stares into the recorder, thin-lipped mouth pulled into a knowing smirk over teeth that seem just a bit too big for her head. I know why you are here. The resulting silence is powerful. She glares into the recorder, eyes dancing with fervor. Her face seems to pulsate between absolute disgust and reverence. Most of the people in the courtroom have seen this video before. It's been online for years, since the arrest. She speaks again and everyone watching flinches. Sunlight! And her face lights up with a smile. She is not beautiful, but when she is happy, she makes other people happy. Her smile falters and slowly drops into a frown. It has taken ten years of math for the soul power system to give us a midday summer sun again. Our birthright is for the sky to always shine with his love. But not like this. We would live in caves to have our brother's soul back. Matilda's voice carries powerfully over the recording. Behind her is a gorgeous mountain valley. A valley alive with beautifully colored little yellow, purple, and red flowers poking through black soil covered in grass that could be shards cut from emeralds. The craggy cliffs of Mount Ava haunt the foreground. A lake sparkles, promising to be painfully cold. It's a perfect Rocky Mountain day, crisp weather with the taste of snow on the air. In the blue sky is a rectangle of white light. It sparkles intensely. Technology has taken the sun from his creations, robbed humans of their solar birthright. The sun has returned, and together we celebrate my fiftieth year. The rays of the sun were blocked before my birth, but today be hallowed with their return, however brief. Matilda points a remote at the camera. The video pulls back and shows Matilda presiding over a sea of people laying with their foreheads to the ground, hands stretched out in front of them, each seemingly devout in their love for the sun, or maybe just for Matilda. You climbed this mountain for him. You came to pray, and you have prayed for forty-four days and nights. Pause it here, please. A court tech hits a button on his smart glass, the recording pauses, and the prosecuting attorney stands. He is of the common haplogroup of China. 
Physically unimposing, it is his rigid sense of self that is most noticeable. He wears the traditional black robe and white wig of Earth's court system. Note, she made these two thousand people shave their heads, all except that little knot of hair at the rear of their scalp, symbolic of a handle for God to lift their heads to him. She dressed them in these thin white cotton gowns and made them trudge up the mountain barefoot. She made them sit in the cold grass. She took from them any sense of individuality. These people no longer considered themselves male or female, just fodder. Fodder for a made-up God. Okay, continue the playback. Matilda continues. We search for you, Lord. O Lord of the stars and the moons and the planets, the maker of matter and antimatter, who gives upon us gravity and light. We have given up food for you, my Lord, food which you allowed your child Saul to grow directly for us. This shows your warmth and love. We have given up all food, my Lord, all food not grown with the assistance of your power, for in our desire for you we are unworthy of accepting anything except that which your loving bounty has provided. Pause it again. She didn't give up food, and the only water she allowed them was to look at and sparkles in the green lake behind her. He points at the screen. Hit play. An army of twenty guards walk through the crowd. The guards wear black cotton robes. They have black military-issued leather work gloves and patent leather steel-toe boots. She picked these men for their size. They ate also. She provided them calories and testosterone, wanted them to get bigger. The guards look veiny and quick to violence. On the video, Matilda seems to shiver in just contained satisfaction as a shriveled man with a red topknot collapses onto his side. One of Matilda's roving muscle beelines for him, grips the man at the neck and lifts him off the ground. The man flops lifelessly. Two other guards approach and fold his legs under his body and together they lay him back on the ground with his forehead pressed into the rocky dirt and his arms outstretched. Starting to smell, a voice says close to the recorder's mic. That's the cameraman. Matilda raises her arms into the air and screams, Hallelujah! The word is violent. It echoes in the thin, artificial air of the courtroom. Pause. The video pauses with Matilda's arms outstretched in supplication to her god. The barrister walks to the screen, stares up at the image for a moment. The moment soon stretches into overly dramatic until he turns and points at Matilda. Two thousand dead. Matilda moans, or laughs, or threatens, or prays loudly to her god, one of which is what got her silenced in the first place. She clamps her jaw hard against the ball gag in her mouth. Her eyes are wild and red with rage. Her hands, secured behind her back with zip-tie, flex with murderous intent. There's a rumble in the courtroom. The defense attorney looks up from her doodle towards the judge's bench. Objection, Your Honor, the prosecuting attorney is estimating. Lang is court-appointed. She doesn't care. Her client is guilty and going to hell. Nothing she says or does will prevent that. Everyone knows she is going to lose. She drew the short straw. But what she can do is something resembling an attempt, even if a bare minimum one. Your Honor, I apologize. I meant 1987 dead. The jury is anyone who wants to vote in the grand court of public opinion. Why stop at twelve when the whole solar system wants to share its thoughts? 200 billion people vote. The verdict, 90% say guilty. In a less official poll, 
10% doubted this somewhat ugly woman could talk so many people into starving themselves to death, but even they thought she was guilty of something, if not murder. When the verdict was handed down, Matilda smiled, because everyone thought she welcomed death. So instead the judge gave her hell, and she got exactly what she wanted. Prison orbiter docking procedure started. Please remain seated. The announcement is voiced by a happy female, and a few of the hundred people chained down onto the metal seats find the levity to chuckle. Some strain to take a look at the place they will be calling home for the rest of their lives. Matilda can see the prison easily enough, and her pulse pounds. She is human, after all, just excellent at ignoring discomfort. Hell, their new home, is black and greasy, like machinery, like a grinder, like a factory that turns living meat into lunch for maggots. It is 19 million grams of mass, stuck going 19,720 kilometers per hour in an orbit around the sun opposite Neptune, a man-made hell filled with the worst of humanity. And now Matilda. So that's hell? I expected more. The woman next to Matilda tries to lean closer, but her chains rattle as they strike the metal seat under her. She smells like someone who hasn't seen a shower in weeks, which is good because no one on this transport has seen a shower in months. The transport is a slow mover and one giant cryo-freezer to keep the prisoners docile. Matilda still feels warm and sticky from the wake-up procedure, but what she doesn't feel is the ten months it took to get here. Along with the burning ozone stench of space, the whole transport has the stagnating sense of waste to it. Why bother sending people to the middle of nowhere to die slowly doing nonsense work? Just kill them. It was a societal weakness she was here and not dead. A weakness she exploited in her machinations. No thine enemy and all that. I knew someone that came back. It's a wistful voice from somewhere. No, you fucking did not, shouts an angry response. The prison transport slides closer to the orbiter. A large yellow airlock is poised to accept its berth. The ship docks whisper quiet. Conversations shift from the braggadocious pre-prison chit-chat to a bunch of mumbled rumors. The truth is no one who has been sentenced to the orbiter has ever come home. It's a lifetime sentence cleaning space junk. I heard most prisoners die of cancer in less than a year. Matilda heard that one. She also heard that there was no such thing as a prison orbiter and that the government space dusts people out into the vacuum. She was fairly certain this was not true, but now with hell being an actual thing, she finds herself relieved. A concussive alarm sounds just prior to the outer hall door breaking its seal. A giant rush of hissing air and pressure assaults. Then the seats are dragged from the transport into the prison like a funhouse train. The temperature drop is stunning. She can see her breath on the air. The fiberglass-filled orange gowns they were given for transport do nothing to help against the bone-aching chill. She reminds herself, you either die or get used to it, and the cold becomes Matilda's new normal. The transport seats are pulled into a harsh, white-lit hallway. Through the slates in her chair back, metal teeth reach up, hook her garment, and with a whir, rip it from her body. The humiliation stings like a physical pain, but then settles into a now that includes complete vulnerability. She reminds herself being naked is fine, being imprisoned is fine, because it is getting her closer to her god every second. She finds herself smiling at a prison guard. Despite himself, the prison guard smiles back. When the moments that make up time equal ten years, a woman named Brody Greer is hired to perform a collection of tasks. She got the message in the normal roundabout way. 
Her handler set up a meet with a guy that dumped an obscene amount of money into her personal account, and all she had to do was promise to show up. She now stands in an upward-shooting lift on Galactic's Venus station. At least she thinks it's upward-shooting. She feels movement in her stomach, but it's smooth. The elevator is a well-constructed copper box. If she hadn't stepped through one of the walls and watched it slide closed, she might think she was enclosed completely. Even the lighting and air vents are expertly blended into the smooth aesthetic. Galactic is a Venus company based out of the sky city of Rona, which hovers 30 miles above its namesake, the Rona Chasma. It floats on silver balloons filled with helium-16. Helium-16? Brody doesn't know chemistry, but thinks it's irradiated. Something, 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 lighter and denser like the gas version of concrete. However it works, it keeps a city with millions of people in it floating above the pressure cooker that is Venus. Galactic is all-powerful, a glorious gang of raging construction, media, and tech fanatics. They are the group that corralled the sun, ending its unpredictable tantrums with the press of a switch. Its soaring solar winds increased or decreased on the whim of a technician now, all for the added comfort of the human inhabitants of the solar system. This technical magic allows every meter of the star in the prime of its life to be converted into limitless power. Sadly, the tech also steals his natural light and offers an almost permanent dusk to the people who wield the whip. The dark is offset by lights and heaters, and the whole of the Earth and every human colony is climate-controlled and fed with a constant stream of galactic-produced entertainment. The image of Brody, the great independent contractor, is reflected in the elevator doors. She is the girl no one notices, with short, mousy brown hair, a twitchy little nose, and lips that always look disgruntled. She is here because she is good at what she does, and what she does is make things go bye-bye. She touches at the dongle around her neck. Security gave it to her. They told her it would allow access to level 1345 and nowhere else. 1345 is where the outside vendor's sleeping facilities are located. Brody has no plans on sleeping anytime soon. The bud in her ear buzzes. You hear me? It's Hempt, her tech guy. Her eyes and ears where she can't get eyes and ears. Yes. It's done. Good. Brody looks past her reflection and studies the logo of the corporation emblazoned into the steel of the elevator wall. Never have been able to figure out what that is. Burning star, innit? Hemp has an irritating little way about him that makes Brody feel stupid. At least that's what Jazz says. A child's voice breaks in. It's called a Sagmi because it contains typography and storytelling in the classic undesigned format. I think its creator called it Design in Chaos. Not bad for a robot gorilla. Thank you. Brody strains her eyes, and finally, it makes sense that these swirls are an image of a burning star. Poor old Saul. Stuck. A battery. Alone in the center of his little collection of gravity wells. Hemp sarcastically whines. It's annoying, but Brody knows the Martian isn't wrong. What once was a brilliant mix of nuclear fire and cosmic physics was now invisible to the naked eye. Just a thing in a box connected to technology. A power slave, Hemp continues. Shut up, please. She hates that it feels like the hemp can read her mind, even from hundreds of miles away. You know that shit freaks me out. After a very long, sarcastic, soaked pause, hemp says, Sorry, boss. Brody knows he doesn't mean it, and that he can't read minds. It's just obvious math. It's not that Brody feels bad for the sun. She doubts it has sentience like many of the new cults that sprang up since the Matilda trial think it has. 
Brody hasn't gone and joined the Free the Sun Society or anything, and if it turns out the Sun has feelings, she will apologize to it for all humanity. She does feel that more good comes from enslaving it than would come by not doing so. If anything, she is in the Give Money to Brody Greer Society, and that's the why of going through with this whole thing. Big fat wads of cash. Then what? she asks herself. If this job goes down like she thinks it will, Saul's system will be dead. Not just to her dead, but dead dead. What's left then? Move to Alpha Centauri? Be the first human to survive the trek to another solar system? She does not know Matilda. She watched the galactic stream like everyone else, but she did not vote. As a career criminal, she considers that bad luck. All she knows for sure is that she is doing a job in concert with an infamous cult leader whose aims are to destroy Galactic's Sol power system. Brody knows she might be helping her accomplish her task. The problem is she doesn't know for sure. She never met the woman. Behind the curtain, Matilda could be all talk. A sociopath who likes to make people kill themselves. There is no turning her back on that much money anyway. So money first, aftermath later. The lift stops and Brody finds herself floating slightly as artificial gravity fights to catch up with physics. Then the doors slide open. The cavernous room beyond is burnished steel with copper undertones. Through the floor-to-ceiling transparent steel bulkhead, a gutted megatransport can be seen. It's one of the space cities that can hold a million people, probably destined for orbit around a gas giant. She wonders if this old people's paradise is the one she'll be retired to when the time comes. I'm here she whispers. Cool, locating your signal now. Commence upload. Brody reaches into the pocket of her faux leather jacket and depresses the activation button on the information vacuum. The sole LED light on the device blinks to red. In the silence, she hears it as a small high-pitched whine and the only evidence things are going as planned. The first part of the plan being an info dump, followed by a run, but from what, she is not sure. Upload is working. We are coming around. ETA five minutes. A generation of humans will work on this ship. Thirty years worth of effort. Then what? We build another ship? And then another and another and another? When does it stop? Her heart seizes in her chest. The voice is old and confident. She has heard it before. The entirety of the solar system could pick out its owner with ease. In the center of the room is a two-cushion black leather couch. On it is Cunningham Brookshire, galactic CEO. What do you think? Cunningham says, standing to face the elevator and Brody. I prefer things on Earth. Artificial blue sky and fake gravity for this girl. An old spacer like you. Soon. Soon? Brody finding herself staring at the giant ship. Sparks fly from welding guns held in the hands of two small-to-see workers in EVA suits. The orange flares illuminate the ship's dark corridors. That's when it will end. Soon. She flinches when the elevator reminds her to exit in a friendly female voice. Brody steps free and her heels clack on the naked steel floor. She's dressed the part of a sales professional, gray pantsuit and black pumps, but prepared to fight if she needs to. Is that Cunningham? Hemp asks. She whispers, yes. Hang tight. Three-minute ETA, Jazz says. You and your team can relax. I am far from trying to stop you. Strangely enough, I've come to cover your exit. Do a favor for a great woman. Matilda was the best thing to happen to Galactic since we harnessed the sun. 
She was our nemesis. She was the yang to our ying. Brody beelines towards Cunningham as she answers. Public perception of the soul crazies is that they want to free the sun. You see the irony? It's romantic. Life feels stale without the sun. Not worth living. He sips from a rock's glass. Maybe I feel the same. I can't remember one way or the other. Care for a nip? Brody guesses. Single malt? The words bounce around the steel room. Bowman 25. Good guess. Almost priceless, I bet, in the Venetian cloud cities. Special perk for being CEO. Brody shakes off the offer. Seat. No, thank you. I'd rather stand. She studies Cunningham. He is well-dressed in what she gathers is non-synth material. His shining pink pate is circled by gray hair. He is long and skinny. It's going to Vespa. Cargo. The salesman takes a loud sip from his whiskey, ice rattling. He gestures to the generation ship with his glass. We build ships in orbit between the moon and Venus. We work out here in the chemistry equivalent of an all-you-can-eat buffet. Ore is mined elsewhere in the solar system and smelted here. On the surface, it might seem like we could be swayed by disruption, but honestly, the salesman sighs and sits, nothing stops us except cost. Ore is limitless. Gas is limitless. Maybe cost should... Time and tech are the commodities I deal with. You want an anti-gravity ship to make space a viable option in which to stick your whatever. Well then, expect to pony up, partner. It's going to cost fifteen figures and people want what they can't afford. The more expensive our products, the more people clamor for them, and not just the generation ships either. Smart glass, news, transportation and power, none of it affordable, and all made cheaply with infinite materials right here in the solar system. But the problem is people are complacent in their little utopias. They have nothing to fear. They eat at our little buffet and only take what they need. Galactic need them to glut. Feast! Frenzy on our products! All she wants is to free Saul. She won't stop escalating her protests until she does. Matilda can't afford to get what she seeks. If she succeeds, then she has erased the need for herself. Galactic feels safe that she wants to continue being needed. But we can no longer afford to do this without her. We need her free, attracting attention, creating a patriotic fervor for Galactic. So you want me to break Matilda out of hell? No. Matilda is working on her imprisonment herself. What we want from you is to give Matilda what she wants. Free Saul? A public distraction? Yes. Well, then what? We know she is building something. A bomb, maybe. We are positive people are going to die, but in consideration of the great economy, their sacrifices are needed. Thankfully, you don't have to make a sacrifice, because now you are going to be rich beyond measure, and when everything's said and done, free from moral dilemma. Brody knows Galactic gets paid and can make her one of the richest women in history. Cunningham continues, Earth is overcrowded, and people are colonizing every conceivable celestial surface in the solar system. When humans spread out, we spread out hard. He turns and points through the transparent steel window. Sadly, this is true. No one else makes transports. And our ships are built to go many lifetimes. 
This one was recently reclaimed as a heavy-equipment long-haul vessel and command center for the mining operation Pepper Ann. That hunk of rock was mined out decades ago. Now you're getting it. We are in this for the long term, but without a viable villain, we are starting to look evil, selfish, and greedy. We need a Hitler. We need someone more evil than us. You want to free Matilda so there's someone worse than Galactic in the solar system? Yes, and the only price is that Earth will lose their most valued prisoner and be blacked out for a few months. Cunningham steps close. She can smell the whiskey. She can smell his stale stench, the stench of static and old onions, of someone who has spent his entire life in space. But they will gain oh so much more. Brody knows Earth will keep Matilda alive, no matter what. She is the nightmare the population of this solar system cannot kill. If she died today, her memory would stretch into forever. Hemp's voice hits her eardrum like a hammer. We are standing by. Do you know what's coming next? She faces away from him and toward the transparent steel bulkhead. Yes. His arm circles her waist. He pulls her in closer. Now, let's talk about something you can blow. Jazz's voice reaches her ear. Charges are set, and one more second. After the briefest of pauses in which Brody was sure Cunningham was coming in for a kiss, Jazz returns with, Ready when you are, boss. Brody takes Cunningham's hand in her own and nods. She doesn't feel conflicted. She does not like feeling conflicted. A job's a job. Do you want to experience the end, or do you want an easy out? His mouth works, but is empty of words. Brody decides for him and places both hands on the man's face and twists hard. The bones in his neck snap like a deadfall log popping in a raging fire. Less than a moment later, the floor beneath the transparent steel wall explodes, sucking the couch, Cunningham, and Brody out into space. Brody forces all the air from her lungs, closes her eyes and trusts Jazz. Space is a brief tingle of imminent death, but she is quickly enveloped by the warm, furry confines of the giant robot gorilla's arms. Gotcha, comes the little girl voice. Then an airlock alarm blares and stops when the hatch clicks shut behind her and Jazz. Hemp's voice reaches her ear. Airlock secure. The familiar rubber-coated metal floor of her ship is under her gaze. The old hum of self-maintenance equipment is in her ears and the smell of her old meals and dirty laundry are in her nose. Thanks, Jazz. Any time, boss. She climbs to her feet and makes her way to the pilot's console. Through the viewport is the room she was just in, but the transparent steel is cracked and punctured, with atmosphere streaming out in a white cloud. We can leave any time, boss, says the fiery red-furred gorilla. Did you dump the industrial accident evidence? Done. A sudden bump from outside draws her attention. She looks and sees Cunningham's surprised face peering in, dead and cracked from the rapid space freeze. Sad waste of life. It's what he signed on for, to be a distraction. She pulls the device from her pocket and plugs it into a slot in Jazz's chest. How'd we do? The robot's eyelids close like apertures and flutter briefly. Ninety-eight terabytes of information. And... Hemped is gray-skinned and stooped like all zero-G people. He was raised in the orbit of Mars and is old enough to know life before artificial gravity was a thing. 
skinny, long-fingered, and completely incapable of living at 1G. He looks ridiculous strapped into the harness that holds him off the deck. The cords and padding that cut into his smooth, muscle-free body look painful, though he says otherwise. He wears an augmented reality helm. Through the yellow-tinted glass, Brody can see his huge blue eyes scrolling through some text. Security is on their way. I seeded the chatter and they are already focusing on an industrial accident, but we should get going. Brody sits in the pilot's chair and types a few commands into the ship's computer and hits execute. We'll pop the negative mass drive and open a black hole. That'll put a few thousand miles between us and this construction station. The engines begin to rumble and the generation ship filling the viewport begins to dwindle as Brody reverses away from it. Next stop, a prison fit for a son. Matilda hates defiance. She hates backbone and grit. And the warden seems to be displaying all of them. I am doing the best that I can. Matilda greets the ploy instantly. The best. I thought we were almost there. Matilda stares down at the man, allowing the silence to brood. Just a few more weeks, Matilda, I promise. We could officially take over your little prison. Let the world know how you run things up here. Maybe we create tales of little dalliances to tell your wife about. Help me complete my quest and the solar system will be free of me once and for all, but then everyone likes a good death. Maybe we should ask your kid. Matilda snaps her fingers and a smart glass is placed in her hand. She looks at it briefly before turning it around to show the warden. His face crumbles. The image is of his son, a pudgy twelve-year-old finger resting on the red button that will open the airlock door behind him. Hi, Billy, Matilda says. Billy waves at the recorder. Please don't. Billy, can you hear me? It's Dad. Please don't hit that button. Billy waves again and smiles at the recorder. Matilda's laugh is dismissive. Honestly? You beg your child to save himself when it is you that holds the key to his safety? I will do anything. Please, Matilda, you know that. Then why is it taking so long to retrofit the prison with the specifications I asked? God waits. Soon, I promise. Her thin-lipped mouth pulls back into the familiar knowing smirk. God has limitless patience, even for tiny men like you. Thank you, Matilda. Thank you so much. But I never said I do. A month later, Brody's ship maintains a heading behind Mercury. Hidden from the intense heat throne, the sun jazz celebrates. All eighteen drone beacons just went dead, meaning we got insertion in the shielding units. Did you start the timer? Yes. Hemp nods and moves the fingers of his right hand as if inputting some text. A timer pops up in the top corner of the ship's front display. It says 23 hours and 57 minutes. What we really should be concerned with is how well I coded our escape route. Based on the information we got, these explosions are going to shred those shielding units, but only if my math is error-free. He pauses, fingers working a virtual calculator. Yeah, everything should be fine. Hemp's promise for should be was jarring. He wasn't normally an optimistic guy, and this taste of it is a shock to hear. You developing subroutines that mimic faith? She watches him frown a gesture that makes him look like a cross between a salamander and a monkey. Faith? Humanity's worst trait. Just look at you. All the faith in the world isn't going to make the twelve digits sitting in your account worth anything. We shall see. Brody knows he might be right. After this, humanity will be set back a thousand years. Galactic will rebuild the power system, 
blame Matilda, maybe even put the whole Free the Sun movement in the history books, but if they can't, if she destroys these shielding units and frees the sun, and they can't rebuild the system, the information Jazz crunched said it would take a million years for humanity to recover. Fuck em, Brody decides. There's only one reason to wake up each morning, and that's to remind yourself that you aren't dead. That's going to be a lot easier to do with a trillion dollars to spend. She thinks she sees Hemp roll his eyes. Of course, boss. Whatever you say. The warden promises it is done as twenty muscle-twitching orange-clad prisoners enter with Matilda at their center, deep into the cargo hold of the prison orbiter. The cargo hold takes up a large portion of the orbiter's aft. It is lit with white light and hums with seventy-five CPUs running a Googleplex of routines. He stops and says, As you instructed, a modified negative mass drive, pointing to a personal transport-sized black box. Is it wired and connected to the ship? As instructed. Matilda smiles. What is it going to do? Open a portal to my god. He'll kill us all. No. Matilda's smile broadens. No. God promises we never die. At least not without purpose. Brody is counting down as the timer in the top portion of the screen hits zero and eighteen nuclear explosions occur simultaneously. In space, the splitting atoms are less stunning than they would be on Earth. There is no fireball but then there is also nothing to slow the blast wave down either. But that is not the point. The point is the incoming EMP, Jazz warns. The eighteen giant waves of energy roll toward the small ship. Hemt, whitehole us, please. Aye, aye, boss. Hemt hits the execute key and a small black hole opens, sucks in the small ship and closes. The EMP pulse races over the now empty spot. Brody pilots the ship out of the corresponding white hole a million miles beyond Pluto, leans back in her chair, and breathes a sigh of relief. A relief that lasts exactly three minutes. For when the tech surrounding the sun dies, the star releases centuries worth of energy in one giant solar flare. This unexpected energy wave is filled with violent particles and murderous radiation. It washes over everything. All organic life it touches dies instantly microwaved, every cell cooked down into a shriveled dead mass of worthlessness. Brody is not the only human to survive, but is certainly one of only a few to do so. The population of the solar system can really only sit and watch and wait for their turn. It takes five minutes for the entirety of Galactic Core to catch the wave and become a graveyard of semi-completed projects. It takes eight minutes to reset the 3.8 billion years' worth of life's trial and error on Earth. Matilda, though, has to wait 4.2 hours for the solar tsunami to reach her. When the wave arrives at the prison, it unleashes the power contained in the negative mass bomb. A portal opens and sucks Matilda through. On the other side, Matilda feels pain like she never felt before. She is being born again, with every organ inside her body, every cell, turning inside out. The agony stops with Matilda's last moment. She finds herself staring at the black curtain of space. She is floating. The curtain parts, and a universe-sized yellow eye with a slit of soulless black at its center focuses on her. Her broken body fills with love. A voice? No. More like pure knowledge reaches her. The knowledge is not spoken, it does not vibrate air particles or reach her ears or have to penetrate understanding in her brain. 
Instead, she feels the words as if they are spoken directly to her soul. The message from her god is a simple one. As her will to exist ebbs and she fades into the ether, the understanding goes with her that she was known, even if for the briefest slivers of time, by her god, and thanked for her efforts. And that alone makes it all worth it. Brian Aiello hosts weekly podcasts on creativity and speculative fiction and is a writer of fantasy, sci-fi, and the macabre. Raised on Florida's Gulf Coast, Brian served in the Army, graduated from the University of South Florida, and now calls Brooklyn home. For more of his fiction and links to his podcasts, visit www.brianiello.com and follow him on Twitter at Briello. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.